Let's dig into Galatians then. Galatians chapter 1. It's always encouraging to hear from one in this Christian journey. We do not ever want to get to the point where we think that everybody else has it okay and figured out and we're the only life that's unraveling at the core and, uh, and everything's crashing in on us. As a, as a family unit, uh, we together are growing together and uh, we can encourage one another in the things that we're learning and the struggles that we go through. And so that's why it's really important for us to be able to be open with one another in conversation or discussion. Um, I'm in several different discipleship opportunities right now. And what is really refreshing in that is the ability to be transparent. Um, as your shepherd and pastor, I do my best to grow spiritually and to be accountable to the Lord. But I also am not afraid to admit my shortcomings and my wrongdoings. And so with accountability groups and with conversation and in discipleship and Bible study, that naturally flows because the barriers are broken down and you can easily say to people, I've blown it before too, or this is where I'm at, or man, really pray for me here. And uh, so I really encourage you to, to find that type of connection somewhere within the church body that you can grow in that manner. And, uh, of course, we're providing our discipleship ministry that uh, happens on Wednesdays, on Sundays. Uh, some of our, our folks that are in discipleship are meeting on Saturday mornings. Some are meeting on a weeknight, um, just whenever is convenient in their schedule. And uh, so it is not one of those ministries that has to happen during the church hour. This is one of those things that is just a culture that is being developed within our church family. And, uh, and that is something that will continue to go on with us as people go beyond curriculum into life pouring into other lives. Iron sharpening iron, laughter, growth, relationship, crying, praying, uh, change, transformation. Those are elements that happen. So um, as a church, I'm excited about that. And uh, I'm thankful to, to be a part of a, gro a group that wants that and is participating in that. So let's continue to grow. And uh, when you fall, get back up, um, get going again. Um, if you fall behind in your reading, catch up, do the best you can. Uh, Bible.is, that app uh, is a huge help. You can throw that on the earbuds or throw it on in the car or something when, uh, when you can read or be listening to it while you're uh, doing life. And uh, so that's a, that's a help to you. So Galatians chapter one though, let's dig back into our Bible study for tonight. This is part two of our series we're looking at this plus nothing series uh, going through the book of Galatians. If you didn't get a handout, but you would like one, um, maybe somebody could grab those. Tim, do you mind grabbing those uh, back there in the lobby? And if you did not get a study guide, but would like one, just uh, uh, Tim will grab those for you. And then there's always pens, uh, pens up there in a cup holder there on the, on the top there. So sometimes in our services, we would pause to allow people to tell their story of conversion, about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that and in all of the varieties of stories that are told. And that's always an encouraging time, a really refreshing time. And, and that's kind of what we're going to do tonight in the study of Galatians chapter 1, looking at verses 10 through 24, is we're basically going to pull up a chair with Paul, and Paul is going to tell us his story. Uh, he is going to share uh, his journey to fellowship with Christ, becoming in Christ, and Christ becoming in him. This was not something that was very rare for Paul because he would do this on multiple, Acts 26, 
So this was something that was very common for Paul to do. Now, in in Galatians chapter 1, we're looking at verse 10 through 24 tonight. But really, if you look at that section that we're going to study, as well as chapter number 2, all of that is kind of um, has been labeled like a biographical sketch of this epistle, of this letter that Paul writes. It's giving the story and kind of the, the foundation to why Paul is the voice and the messenger of this letter. And then in the next chapter, which we'll study next week, it talks about the unity of the gospel. And so it's kind of giving a little bit more uh, proof or evidence of why those who will read this letter and those who will hear this letter, why they should take note of what he is saying. Paul was, of course, a very humbled man, and he was being used by God. And and, uh, we have to remember why he is addressing this. Why is he writing the book of Galatians, the Traveling missionary church planter has established some churches in the region of Galatia. He has moved on. He is writing letters back and forth. He finds out that false teaching, therefore a different gospel, another gospel, is being proclaimed to these new Greek Christians, the Jewish Christians, the Greek Christians. They're going back and forth with each other. There's There's this racial divide. There's this cultural divide that is going on in the churches in Galatia. And Paul is alarmed by this. He knows that he has to address it, and so he writes. And as he writes this letter, he comes right out very boldly and straightforward saying, this is not true. What you as Jewish Christians are saying that the Greek Christians need to do in order to be saved. Of course, the Jewish Christians, as we would call them, Judaizers, and they were very devout, uh, they were just devout um, Christians who were following the Old Testament law to a T, and so the dietary laws, the circumcision laws, and the, uh, the dress laws, and everything about the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, they were taking literally and they were making happen. And so they were expecting the Greeks, who knew nothing about that culture, who knew nothing about that historical context, and who knew nothing about that being a part of salvation. So that's why Paul addresses this, that's saying that the true gospel is grace plus nothing. So it is not by any works of righteousness by which we can do. And Paul has to address this, and he has to do it very forcefully and authoritatively. And so he's going to do that here. Now, Paul will address this obstacle by saying things like, well, that is, uh, or he's addressing the the, uh, people who are are mocking or, or criticizing Paul's credentials. And so they're going to say, well, This is Paul's message. This is what Paul thinks about the gospel, but that is incomplete. Or they would even say things like, um, this is what Paul thinks, but here's what we think, and, and it's just we're more valid than what he is saying. They would say that this is simply Paul's message. It's not what the church teaches in Jerusalem. And so a lot of things would always funnel back to Jerusalem, the main hub of the early church as Remember in the Great Commission that Jesus Christ said, take the gospel, make disciples out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth. And so this was now going to be what everybody was referencing to, that Paul doesn't know what he's saying. These Judaizers were trying to defend their message while Paul is trying to teach truth. So Paul is going to defend his message and help communicate that a different gospel is not only dangerous, but will also bring corruption. It will also bring chastisement. 
And this is going to be something that will be condemned. We ended that last week in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, as he said that they will be accursed. He made it again in verse number 9 as he emphasized, let them be accursed. So what do we see in this week? Well, we see this gospel transformed Paul's life. He is a living example of a great transformation, and he is going to be able to give great testimony and personal experience. So number one, this gospel transformed Paul's life. Now, he was not out to impress men. Verse number 10. Let's just look at the text. Let's dig in. We'll read these first three verses, and then we'll get to the other part. He says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this transformation in Paul's life, he says right away, I am not out to impress men. Now this would have been so drastically different for Paul. You've got to think back at Paul's life before conversion, before Christ entered and changed him. That was what he was out to do, was to impress he was out to impress the other religious, the Jewish religious leaders. And so he would persecute the church. He would do everything he could to stop the gospel. He was looking for the approval of these religious leaders. But something obviously drastically changed in Paul. And notice these last three words of verse number 10. It gives us the servant of Christ. This is what changed in Paul. So no longer is he serving under some religious law and method and mode of operation. No longer is he trying to be a show righteous leader. Now he is becoming the servant of God in all humility, ready to serve at whatever God calls. So he says, I'm not here to impress men. And this certainly has been a change in his approach. We all know the danger of trying to be motivated to be men pleasers. One of the things that we all have to be careful of as a church is to be careful not to be swayed back and forth just by the drive to be pleasing to all men. And we know that's not possible, and therefore that's why as a very core foundation as a church, from Discover Parkway class all the way to membership to being plugged into ministry, we all have to remember and understand that this is not about us this is, not, this is not about what we want and what we desire. This is God's church. God is the one who raised up his church, and this is, he's the one who will build his church. And so we understand that truth. So when we can grab a hold of that, it's not about going and swaying back and forth until we feel like we've pleased everybody. Pragmatically within a church, I mean, pragmatically, things morph and things change, things develop. Discipleship ministry grows and develops and looks different than maybe it did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Service schedules change, get rearranged and moved, and focal points become different, and ministries de develop and change. And so pragmatically, how we do things as a church, that all changes and morphs through time. But what doesn't change is doctrine. So doctrinally, we stand firm based on what we study, what we read, and what we develop from God's word. And that's, that's not the, uh, those are the essential truths by which we wholeheartedly stand on. So those are the things that cannot change. The message remains the same, even in the midst of a rapidly changing culture. Would you say even within the last two years that a lot of things, a lot of messages in our culture have changed? 
have morphed, have, have really transformed very uniquely and wickedly. And, um, and, and things that even now you can read articles about the church that are being receptive to some of those things. And that's why we have to be vigilant. We have to be careful. We have to protect the purity and integrity of the church. God, this, is God's, this is the bride of Jesus Christ. And so we have a responsibility to protect the integrity and the purity of the church and the gospel. And so if we can't, as a church, stand firm in that, then God will take it away. He will not allow us that privilege or responsibility to be the church and function in that way. So we, especially not only in a rapidly changing culture, but here in Lakeland, we know that we have a community that is infested with false teaching. Now, I love Lakeland. Man, if I could take a time to write a, a two-page article about why I love Lakeland, I would fill three pages instead of two because I just love the community, I love the city, I love what's happening, and uh, I love that the community is developing, it is growing, and what that challenges us as a church is that we can't just sit in our own little corner of our community and say, well, the world around us or the community around us is moving, growing, and developing, but we're just going to be us four and no more, and you barge those doors closed, and we're just going to be us. No, we develop, we grow, we look to see how we continue to share the love of Jesus in a, a developing, growing community. But also at the same time, we have to be careful because what happens in a community like this is that all religious barricades begin to be flattened. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to join hand in hand. And now we do, it doesn't matter if you don't believe in eternal security. And it doesn't matter if you don't believe in salvation by grace through faith alone and not by works. Because we're still really good friends and, and we can still get along. And all of a sudden, some of the very essential doctrinal truths that cannot change and cannot morph begin to start to develop and change in different ways. And we really, so the gospel core, it remains our motivation. The gospel core can never change. We say that the method of sharing the gospel, it morphs and changes through decades. Some of you in here, there are different ways in which you proclaimed the gospel 30 years ago, but you always stayed true to the message. Here we are 30 years later, the message remains the same, but the way we proclaim it has maybe developed and changed just a little bit. doesn't mean it's always for the better. I mean, sometimes it just happens to be the way that is adapted to the surrounding, but we know that the core, the gospel core, remains the same and becomes our motivation. So let's continue to make that commitment to one another at Parkway. I make a commitment to you to keep the, the, the power of God's word in the pulpit to be seasoned and to be true and to never veer away from that. And we will make that same committed, commitment in our classrooms and we will continue to do that as a church body. The letter B. Here's then what he also said. He said, this gospel was not conceived by man. In verse 11, he says, but I certify you Brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. So it was not conceived by man. He says certify. This is the word I assure you. And it comes from a Greek verb that means to make known with certainty. So he is not just saying, 
hey, just, just for some info, just for some new intel, this, this, and this. No, he stands boldly and says, with certainty, I must proclaim, I must make certain to you, I assure you that um, the gospel which was preached of me is not conceived, it was not derived from any human source, it is between Christianity and other, and, and then the difference between Christianity and any other gospel out there. Well, it's always going to be the source by which it was given. So if it's man-made rules and regulations, if it's traditions of men that have been added into, okay, and by the way, within a, within a, a culture like our church, we have to be careful that we don't add traditions of men and man-made rules to the process of our salvation and certainly not as the defining moment of our, of our sanctification. So now there are things by which are established as standards and biblical principles by which we apply to our life and we're governed by and we live by. But we also have to understand that we must be careful that that source always, always comes back to God's word. That's why we have a generation that has questioned the fact of what they learned 20 years ago. They were never allowed to ask the question, why? And now they're at a place where they're going to ask the question, why? But nobody's ready to give them an answer. And nobody certainly is ready to give them a biblical answer. And so that's why we cannot define our Christian journey and our growth process by man-made rules and regulations. It always has to come to God's word. Because we can force people into our box and we can force people to function and be very uniformed by which we want to function. There's a lot of churches out there that do that. But we are not going to find God's blessing in progressing or moving forward or with God's guidance in our individual priesthood of believers as growing together. So that's why we have to be careful. So he says, this, this message I give you, this true gospel is not conceived by man. And, uh, and so here he says also, verse number 12, it's not delivered by man. Now, this statement is very purposeful because it contrasts what the Judaizers were all about. Understand Judaizers. Remember, these are the, the, the Jewish Christians who were zealots. They were sold out. They were excited, but they were adding something to the gospel. They were saying, you have to have the Old Testament law. The dietary laws, the dress laws, the, the, the circumcision laws, everything has to be a part of your salvation if you're going to be a part of God and his family. So what Paul is now going to say is he says, you Judaizers who received your religious instruction by the traditions of men with repetitious memorization that was passed down from generation to generation. And remember, the Judaizers, they didn't study the scriptures for themselves. They were just going based on what was passed down by the rabbinical code from time to time to time. The rabbis would pass it down and they would have this repetitious memorization that was passed down over and over and over again. There's nothing wrong with repetitious memorization. That's certainly a, an element of learning and very helpful for us to be able to recount something when the time comes. But what happened here was, as so much of this had been skewed through the centuries, that now they were wanting this religious authority and these religious guidelines to be added to their salvation. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. It's a lengthy quote, but it's necessary. He says, there is a gospel in which the work and the glory are divided between God and man, 
and salvation is not altogether of grace. And you say, whoa, 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 Spurgeon, that's not good. All right, he's speaking of another gospel. He says, but in our gospel, salvation is of the Lord. Man never could nor would have invented and devised a gospel that would lay him low and secure to the Lord God all the honor and the praise. What he's saying here is very true, that even we see through false religions, false teachings, false beliefs, and false gospels, is that these man-made devised patterns come from people who are not willing to humble themselves before an almighty sovereign God. People now, these Judaizers, did not want to humble themselves to say that they were, they were helpless and hopeless and desperate because they said, we'll take God's grace, but we'll function on our own too so that we have some sense of accomplishment about this gift of salvation. So the transition here that Paul makes is that verses 10, 11, and 12 beautifully sets the stage for Paul to share his story of how God through the revelation of Jesus Christ gave him the gospel of grace. So let's, in verses 13 through 24, this gospel transformation was nothing short of amazing. I really couldn't find any better adjective. We sing the song, Amazing Grace, and uh, that adjective is one that encompasses everything that we think about this grace and this gospel message. So let's just read and unfold what happened here. He says, for ye have heard of my conversation, my lifestyle, my manner of living in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace... Boy, verse 15, highlight that neon sign, do something. That's crucial to understand that even before he was born, God had directed that Paul would be this one. He separated him from my mother's womb, called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. He says, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me or for me, through me, and God was glorified. In 14, he reminds us who he was. He was the man who did a lot of terrible things. That was Paul. We know his story. He was intensely persecuting the church of God, Paul, on the road to Troia, verse number 13. By the time that Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, he had killed so many innocent people. In his hands, with his command, with his motive, and with his decision. Understand that. Paul had killed so many innocent people. 
And he was really on his way now onto the road to Damascus to arrest and uh, to imprison more Christians. He wanted to eliminate the church of Christ. He was doing everything he could. He was filled with so much hatred. And yet Paul was also a man who had done many religious deeds. Now, make sure you comprehend that. Because we see evil Saul. When we see a killer of Christians, the desire was to destroy the church. He was going to imprison them, arrest them. He was going to do everything he could to eliminate God's church. But he was a religious man. (laughs) He did religious deeds. He spent years seeking to live according to the Jewish customs and traditions. In in verse number 14, did you see it? Even in verse number 14, it it tells us that he excelled and, and beat almost every one of his own generation, his age group, at being zealous for moral righteousness. That's interesting. And yet none of this made him right with God. None of it did. These were all empty works on his own behalf. So if there's anybody who could be writing this letter to the Judaizers to remind them, hey guys, back down, slow down, because the gospel, the true gospel, is grace plus nothing else. And so he's doing everything he can to remind them that it's not about the Mosaic law. And Paul is basically saying, guys, I've already been there and done that. I know this subject well. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God by being the most zealous and detailed person that follows the moral and the ethical and the cultural codes of your day. He said, I've done all of that. He said, I was a religious man excelling at my role. I had every other zealot beat out in my generation. I was moving fast and furious. He said, I hated Christians, I would kill them, I wanted to destroy the church, and then God changed my life. You understand that this gospel of grace is what happened in him. Though Paul was a great religious rule keeper, he knew that it was not about that now that he had been changed. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God working so powerfully on the mind and heart to change our lives. Let me say it again. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God. We know that. We've grown up listening that grace is the, the unmerited favor by which he gives us salvation, but it is also that which is working so powerfully on the mind and heart in order to change lives. So what we learned about Paul's experience is that there is, there's, if there is no one good that they don't, so good that they don't need the gospel of grace in their life. That's what we learned from Paul. But on the other side of Paul, we also see that there's not anybody so bad that they don't need the gospel of grace in their life. We encounter people on both angles. People who think they, we're in in a community where you almost have to talk somebody into realizing that they're unsaved. We almost have to unsave people in order for them to get saved. Because they're basing their salvation on so many other things apart from grace and nothing else so it's, it's it's all based on things that they've done in the past or their family so here nobody is too too good to not need the gospel of grace nobody is too bad to not need the gospel of grace then letter b what was god doing here verses 15 through 24 
Not until Christ sovereignly confronted him on the road to Damascus did Paul respond to the great reality of the gospel. Had Paul heard the gospel already before? He had. Acts chapter 6, I don't know. Where's the story of Stephen? Chapter 6. Stephen's proclaiming a very clear message of the gospel. And Paul was the one holding the jackets, giving the final nod that said, guys, take the stones and kill this man. He heard the gospel. But it wasn't until God's sovereign timing on the road to Damascus, apart from anything that Paul would do, Paul was desperate, hopeless, and in need. And it was Jesus Christ who showed up that day. And Jesus Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. He even says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It's me. And Christ is the one who paid the sacrifice for Paul. He's the one that paid the sacrifice for us in order for us. We are you by Jesus Christ. And remember God's approval in verse number one? What was God's approval of Christ's sacrifice? It was bringing him back to life. He said, it is done. I will raise him from the dead. I accept the work of Christ on the behalf of mankind. So what caused this blind sinner to take a, a 180 degree turnaround? It was the gracious will of God. Look at verse number 15. But when it pleased God, this was God's timing, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. It pleased God to reveal his son to me that I might preach, Paul says. Huh. This is the moment it goes from being head knowledge to being a heart passion. Paul had the head knowledge. He was a religious dude. He had heard the gospel from Stephen. No doubt the people he would beat to death in prison, people that he had had killed, no doubt he knew the things of the true gospel apart from this different gospel. But it wasn't until God's sovereign timing drew him to himself and Jesus Christ confronted him with his need of salvation. And by the way, let's be encouraged in this. There are people in our life that we are desperately praying that their heart would be turned to God and that their life would be changed and transformed. We're praying for their salvation, and, and we don't understand the timing, but God does, and we need to stay faithful in our prayers. We need to stay faithful in our witness. We need to stay faithful in our testimony. Be consistent. Be fervent. Be faithful. Understand for some of them, you are a picture of the gospel that they see some on a daily basis, others on a weekly basis, others on a once-in-a-while basis. So a true Christian has so much more than an intellectual belief in God. We should have this heart change that becomes then a passion that flows from us. So Paul immediately realized that he was being called to show others who Jesus was, and he was to do this through his life and through his ministry. And it was not going to be an easy one, by the way. And I bet if, if some of those people that he harmed, if they knew all that Paul was going to suffer, they'd probably say, good, serves him right. I don't care if he's going to be shipwrecked. Beat him all you want. He needs to suffer a little bit. 
But Paul was going to face it. It was a part of God's plan and design. And notice that Paul had a path of growth and discipleship. I love this. Verse 17 and 18. So he says, nor did I, he says, to reveal the Son in me, so that for Jesus Christ was being revealed in Paul, that I might preach him among the heathen. So this is coming. And we know his ministry is going to be phenomenal. He's going to be preaching to the heathen. He says, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Hmm. He says, I didn't immediately go to mankind. He says, therefore, that's why he would say back in 10, 11, and 12, that his teaching didn't come from man. His calling didn't come from man. Hey, our calling, it does come from God, commissioned by man. Remember we talked about this last week? We all have this calling from God, but as an approval through the church system, we have this commission, this challenge or this push. So we have been commissioned, approved by man of this call from God, but Paul was different. Paul was able to say, I was not called by man, I was not taught by man, and I was not commissioned by man. He said, I come to you by the commission of God himself. I come being taught by God himself. And when did that happen? Not only during that time of revelation on the road to Damascus, but in verse 17 and 18, he says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I didn't go up to the apostles before me. He had no problem with that. He wasn't like, I'm not going to go talk to those guys. He didn't think he was better than them. But God set him apart. He goes to Arabia and returns again into Damascus. Bible scholars would say he would travel to Tarsus during this three-year period of time. He was being shaped, what we would call now as a solidary time with God, study, reflection, development, and growth. You know, today, we live in a time where busyness is emphasized, almost to where we, we wear it with a badge of honor. And we, we wear it with a badge of honor that I'm, I'm so busy and sometimes we just need to be still, set apart, have some solidarity with God. Some time to be developed, not by man, although that's crucial. I love the moments that I'm having right now being developed with man and the time that I'm pouring into some other young men. And that's a really important part that I believe is making disciples and teaching them, growing, being developed. But there's also times in our life when we need to be apart. And we need to have that growth, that development, that shaping, that forming that doesn't come by man or man's words, but directly by God in that, in that vertical relationship. And I think too often in the busyness of our life, this relationship is substituted for everything else that consumes us. Horizontally here, vertically here, horizontally here. So I think the horizontal relationships are consuming us. So we need to slow down. Solidary time with God is fundamental to the Christian life. But we understand that solidarity is not what the Christian life is all about. Isolation is a dangerous place for Christians to be. Because when we're in isolation, we've eliminated accountability. We've eliminated encouragement. We've eliminated that part of growth that God wants to use. That's why church membership is so important. Somebody who's a true follower of Jesus Christ that says, I don't need to be a church member. I don't need to be a part of the family of Christ. They are saying, what they're saying to God is, God, your bride is not important to me. Now, if somebody wants to say to my face that my bride is not important to them, guess what? They don't get my time, and they certainly don't get my bride's time. Doesn't that make sense? 
So when we say, I'm not interested in being a part of the bride of Christ, we're saying, God, your bride is not what's most important to me. Now, bear with me for 30 seconds. This is not the moment for me to go on this rabbit trail, but it is coming to you one day. Because I am studying right now in seminary this class called Discipleship and Family Ministry. And I had to read a book last week. I hated every moment of it because it was a thick book and I couldn't eat chocolate. So I had to read this book and the book was saying, it, it, the title is When the Church, uh, When the Five Days, maybe you've heard me use family uh, more often than I had before. How many of you have caught that? Anybody caught that? Okay. I can't hide anything. So purposely helping us to realize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, brother so-and-so just isn't some ancient term that came up in the 70s and 80s. And uh, so brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so, we're the family of Christ. We're the family of God. We are accountable to one another. We're to grow one another. We are siblings in this relationship. And when you study the... I said 30 seconds. Never mind. We're going to go, okay? I said 30 seconds. I went too far. That was a rabbit trail. We'll come back to that, though. So what an incredible life change here. Verse 24, we're ending here. They glorified God because of him. Look at the direction of praise. The direction of praise was to God. Brad, you said it in your testimony. Folks, we're always directing people to God. This is not about us. This is not about what we've accomplished. I'm thankful that God uses us. He uses us in spite of us. I'm thankful for that. You look around, this has nothing to do with me. Brother Richardson gives you that same testimony. You who are under his ministry for all those years, you know that you were under a humble man of God. Because it's not about us. This is all about God. If it were about man, tomorrow when he eliminates me, what happens? Well, the church has to continue because this is God's church, not Peter Grant's church. So this is all about God. In our reflection here, there's some questions there. The gospel of grace changes us. And it changed Paul. It changes us. The gospel is both a powerful assurance and a powerful motivation to live in radical obedience. Let me say that again. That'll be my end statement. The gospel, the true gospel, is both a powerful assurance and a powerful motivation to live in radical obedience. So radical obedience is really stretching, but that's what God's called us to do. So let's do it. God, thank you tonight for the reminders of your word. What wonderful truths that Paul gives us in his teaching. Thank you for using him in such a tremendous way. There's so much we could learn just about his testimony, his story that he has shared with us tonight. So God, help us to take this true gospel and to live it. Thank you for how it has transformed our life. And uh, Lord, may you continue to increase your church. Bless us as we go. Give us safety as we depart. We look forward to being back together with the family this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.